Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Howard, and welcome to the Pure Animal Podcast. On today's episode, we're talking to Dr. Trofina Hunter about cognitive dysfunction in dogs and cats. Trofina is a veterinarian in private practice and is currently completing a residency program with the American College of Veterinary Behaviourists. After graduating in 2004 from the University of Queensland, Trofina then went on to work several years in general practice before completing her membership in veterinary behaviour in 2012. Trofina spent several years working in the Lost Dogs Home in Melbourne and has a special interest in the mental health and well-being of shelter animals. She has recently established her own practice with another behavioural vet and behavioural trainer in Melbourne. Hi Trofina, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon, um, Friday afternoon here in Australia. Um, I know it's a busy time for every practitioner, so I really appreciate you taking the time out of your week. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me on today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Um, and I'm really excited today to talk about a topic which I'm quite fond of, which is canine cognitive dysfunction. Um, but before we jump in, I'd really like you to share with me and with our listeners um, sort of your background and how you actually came to be a vet and where your interest in behaviour was sparked. Well, I took a kind of long route, actually, into veterinary science. Um, I grew up on a farm and was always interested in uh, the agricultural side of things, and I studied agricultural science when I finished school. Uh, then decided I wanted to be a researcher, and I started a PhD in a sheep lactation, of all things. Okay. Uh, yeah, random. Um, <laughs> but it was interesting to me at the time. Um, but I got about a year and a half into my research and it became very apparent to me and to my supervisor um, that I was much more interested in the animal health and well-being part of it than the pure research side yeah. of things. So I finished it up as a master's degree and left and uh, studied veterinary science. Okay. And I had always the, the main interest of being a large animal vet, but the part of the small animal world that I always found most interesting was behaviour. Mm. Um, and a big part of that actually is because my father was a behavioural paediatrician. So I grew up oh, right. around, you know, behavioural stuff for kids. Yeah, that's interesting. It's not that different. No, yeah. it's not. <laughs> so, yeah. so that was really where my interest in the behaviour stuff came mm. from. Um, and then I started working as a large animal vet, doing just a tiny bit of small animal work, most of which was behaviour. And discovered that I just absolutely loved doing small animal practice uh, and then started becoming, uh, you know, going down the path to, to specialty training. Mm, okay. And are you are you still doing a residency with the American yes. College? Yeah. Yes, yep. I am. Yeah. Yep. So I'm doing, my, uh, I'm doing a non-conforming residency through the American College of Veterinary Behaviourists. Okay. What does non-conforming mean? It means that I'm doing it outside of a university. So right. a conforming residency is done through a university, um, but most residents of the American College um, of Veterinary Behaviourists are um, doing a non-conforming residency, which means that we're working in private practice and we work under the mentorship of a uh, diplomat of the college. All right. Okay. Well, I've learned mm. something new already. <laughs> <laughs> and when do you expect to finish the residency? 
Um, my hope is to finish all of the requirements for the residency this year and to sit okay. my exams for the board next year. Oh, that's exciting. That's the plan. Yeah. Yes. A lot of work ahead, I guess. <laughs> yes. Yeah. There is a lot of work. <laughs> but we'll be so rewarding but once it's, it's all done. It will be. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it's so much fun to do. Yeah. Well, when you're really passionate about the topic that you're learning about, it's not really hard to sit down each day and do it, is it? No, exactly. Mm. Gosh, you must be busy because I know that you've just started your own private practice with a couple of other um, um, practitioners as well. Yes, I have, which is very exciting. So I have started a practice with uh, another behaviour vet and a behaviour trainer Mm. um, and it's very exciting. That is really exciting. And before there, um, you worked in a, a shelter situation in Melbourne? I did, yeah. I worked in uh, in the largest open intake shelter um, in Victoria and wow. I managed the behaviour department there for about three and a half years. Gosh. Can you tell us a little bit about your experiences there? I'm sure that that was qu- quite the journey, three and a half years working in a shelter in the behavioural section. Um, I'm sure you saw a lot of, of hardship and a lot of rewarding things as well. Yeah, absolutely. It was a, a fantastic learning experience and journey for me and uh, through it I I discovered exactly how passionate I am about uh, the welfare side of behaviour work, mm. particularly working with uh, with shelters and with rescue uh, and rehomed animals. Yeah. It's a really interesting place to work because so many of the dogs and cats that end up in shelters and particularly the dogs that end up in shelters um, are there because they have a behaviour problem. Yeah. And even if that's not the main reason that they seem to be there on the face of it. It's often what sits underneath it because having a behaviour problem puts so much pressure on the human-animal bond and when the human-animal bond is is under a lot of pressure or it breaks, then people tend to then look to rehome their animal mm. or they don't come and claim their animal if it gets lost. Yeah. And so there's a lot of dogs and cats uh, in shelters who have an underlying uh, anxiety problem, mental health disorder, um, but that doesn't mean that they can't be fantastic, wonderful, you know, rehomed animals. They mm. can certainly often be successfully rehomed. Um, I was very passionate about looking at what we could do to help those animals before we rehomed them. So mm. we were treating, you know, diagnosing and treating dogs and then rehoming them uh, with a really open discussion about what we knew about their mental health problems, their anxiety problems. Uh, and then working with people who'd adopted dogs um, uh, like that. Uh, and it's been fantastic. And I have a lot of them are still my regular clients. Mm. I still see them. They've, you know, they, they've been successfully rehomed in their new homes for years. And um, it's lovely. It's incredibly satisfying work. Yeah, it must be. I mean, you're, you're basically saving their lives every single day by giving them a second chance. Yeah, and setting them up for success in their new home. And I think Mm. that's the other part of what I feel very passionate about is that if we don't talk honestly about behaviour problems, and this this is very much the case everywhere, but particularly when we're looking at at, uh, shelters and rehoming organisations and rescue groups, if we don't talk openly about the fact that there might be a problem with this dog's behaviour, then we're not helping anybody. We're not helping the pet and we're not helping the potential adopter. Mm. The best thing we can do is be really honest and say, you know, we think this might be a problem or we know this will be a problem based from previous history um, and here's all the things that we're going to do to help you and to mm. help the pet. 
And so I, yeah, and then supportive. you you weed out the you know the the non committed um, potential future owners by doing that as well, which you know it's yeah. so important to have them on board from from the get go. It definitely is, and most people are. Most people are really happy to to be. You know, I mean, pet owners never fail to amaze me. They're yeah. an amazing collection of very dedicated people, and. It, the thing that I think is important is just to be upfront about saying this isn't for everybody. So yeah. if some people don't feel that they are able to manage a, a dog with a, a more challenging behaviour, and that's very reasonable. It's, again, that's part of setting everyone up for success is saying, well, is, is this the right dog for you as well as is this the right, are you the right person for this dog? Yeah, so absolutely. A two-way thing. Mm. The other thing that I felt very strongly about is that uh, you know, saying that it's not working is not a bad thing. It's not a failure. If you adopt a dog or a cat from a rescue organisation and it just isn't the right animal for your home, that's okay. It's okay to, to go back and say this actually isn't the right fit for me. Mm. That's not that's not a failure. That's a, a sensible acknowledgement of the fact that this just wasn't quite right. Yeah. It's very hard. You know, how do you choose the, the perfect, you know, forever pet yeah. Based on a, a, you know, maybe meeting it once or twice or three times, it's actually very hard to do. Did you have some sort of trial system where pets went home for a certain period to trial them out, um, whether they fit? Yeah, different shelters have different approaches with that, and some do a kind of a foster to adopt concept where you would foster the animal for a, a couple of weeks or longer, with the view to adopting if that uh, the dog's fits into your home. Um, some places get around it by just having a very open discussion around return and just saying, you know, you can adopt, but if it's not the right animal for you, you bring them back to us. Mm. Um, and making sure that, you know, you're in touch with people regularly and you talk to them and and find, make sure that things are going well. And if they're not, then you either support them through that or you support them in bringing the animal back. Mm. No, it's it's certainly really important to have that open, honest conversation right from the start, so people feel safe when they, you know, when they are finding it difficult, that they can come back and that the the dog, the poor dog, isn't sort of back at square one and and thrown out on the street. Um, they're m- much better off coming back to to a, a a known shelter and almost a second home environment for them than the alternative. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that word safe. It is so important that that owners feel safe to talk about, you know, in this case, to talk about problems they're having with an adopted dog. But mm. anywhere, you know, it's important that owners feel safe to say, I'm having trouble with my dog's behaviour. Yeah. And that's actually quite hard for a lot of people to do and they often feel that they're going to be judged. So yeah. safe is a beautiful word to use. Yeah, take the taboo away from it and the stigma. That's right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, it sounds like you really had a very positive experience there. Um, and it's obviously a great passion of yours. But yes. now now when you're working in practice, um, I know you're st- seeing um, the, the sort of ex-shelter um, patients quite a lot, but what are your sort of main interests and what cases really light you up um, in your practice now? Oh, that's such a good question. And <laughs> I, I've been thinking about that a bit recently and saying, well, you know, what is it that really does it for me? Actually, I love every part of my job, and I know that sounds a little corny, but it's true. So refreshing. (laughs) (laughs) It is. It's really lovely. It's why I can continue to feel so enthusiastic and why I can continue to study hard and all of those things is just because I genuinely love everything about what I do. 
I think the things that I particularly enjoy, I certainly enjoy still working with shelters and rescue groups and working with newly adopted animals and mm. setting everyone up for success. That's that's a very important part of, of my professional work. Um, I love teaching and educating. I love working with with vets and vet nurses and vet students to to teach. Um, but I actually really love working with clients and their pets and watching that human-animal bond get stronger mm. as you help people with their, the challenge because a lot of people are struggling with the relationship with their dog by the time they see a behaviour vet. And just being able to sit with people and help them through that is an incredibly rewarding thing to be allowed to do. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that sounds so, so lovely. <laughs> and you're very lucky. Um, well, the, everyone's very lucky to have you, but you're very lucky that you've really found your niche. Um, and so, it sounds yeah. like it, you're really, really happy and passionate about what you're doing, which is so refreshing to hear because there's so many people yeah. complaining these days <laughs> that it's um, a yeah, breath well, of fresh air. <laughs> well, you've obviously made the right choices in your life to get to where you are today. Kudos to you. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah. It's been an um, interesting journey, but a good one. Yeah, well, still on it as well. Yeah, <laughs> very, very much very so. Much so. <laughs> very much so. <laughs> um, and Trufina, given that we we love everything about integrative medicine here at Pure Animal, um, is there some examples of how you utilise integrative medicine and perhaps nutrition in your day-to-day work? Look, I think that there is an important role for being at the very least aware of nutrition in everything that we do probably Mm. as veterinarians and particularly in behaviour because behaviour is so linked to physical health. You know, there's a we know there are so many strong links between uh, physical and mental health and Mm. I think we see it particularly um, with some body systems. So I I particularly see, and there's good good science behind some of this as well, that there are strong links with gastrointestinal Mm. um, disease and gastrointestinal health. Um, So nutrition plays a very important role there. Um, Skin disease, pain is very, very Mm. important. Um, And so having uh, an awareness of what's going on in a broader picture, I think, for the dog is is incredibly important and Mm. cats. Yeah. Um, and I, I think probably the the place where as as a behaviour person and certainly as vets working in general practice as well, the place where we really can put all of this together most importantly is with cognitive dysfunction. Yes, which is a lovely segue <laughs> to what to what we really want to talk about today. <laughs> I'm I'm so interested in cognitive dysfunction. Um, I I remember I, I actually studied chiropractic science before I became a vet and right. I did a, um, a big research paper on Alzheimer's disease in people because my grandmother died of Alzheimer's disease and I've just always been very interested in it. Um, and the more and more I learn about canine cognitive dysfunction and how similar it is and all the markers are so similar and the research that is done on dogs can be used for people and vice versa, it's just it's so, so fascinating and it's so exciting to see um, that it's really being recognised as a, a treatable and manageable condition. Um, so we can be mm. able to give our senior dogs, you know, the highest quality life that they can have until their, you know, until their their last days. Mm, absolutely. And I think you're right, there is a, a ever-increasing body of work in this area. 
Um, we are learning more and more about the science behind cognitive change. As you say, there are lots of strong parallels with Alzheimer's disease. Mm. Um, and so there's a lot of research that still goes on looking at what's going on in terms of the you know, pathophysiology of it all and also what we can do in terms of treatment. The thing that I think is most important for us to be aware of as veterinarians and veterinary nurses when it when it comes to thinking about cognitive dysfunction is that it is incredibly underdiagnosed. Mm. So, you know, there was a study done a few years ago that looked at um, at diagnosis rates and prevalence rates and, the you know, the diagnosis rate of cognitive dysfunction um, in, in that particular study was about 1.9%. Um, there was another study I think suggested it was about 7% of dogs that actually have cognitive dysfunction that are just, that are diagnosed with it. So that's extremely mm, low. Wow, that and is the prevalence crazy. Of the, it is crazy yeah. low. The prevalence is really, really high. Mm. So the prevalence, again, there's you know different data from different studies, but um, probably one of the more recent ones uh, found that... Uh, in terms of find, you know, at least one sign of cognitive dysfunction in 5% of dogs that are aged between 10 and 12, 23% of dogs between the age of 12 and 14, and 41% of dogs older wow. than 14. That's almost half, um, isn't it? It's Exactly. Yeah. And there's another study done a, a, a bit longer ago um, that found uh, was sort of around about 30, I think 28 or 30% of dogs around the 11 to 12 and close to 70% of dogs are older than 15. Wow. And that is extraordinarily yeah, high. Oh, gosh. And the, and the figures in cats are similarly high. Mm. So the you know study um, a few years ago in cats had a 28% prevalence in cats aged between 11 and 15 and 50% in cats older than 15. And I imagine that cats would be even more underdiagnosed than dogs. I suspect they are, and that hasn't been shown. There's actually mm. no work that I'm aware of on the diagnosis rate. Um, but I think we do. We continue to underdiagnose it. And it's the reason that it is underdiagnosed is probably twofold. One is that a lot of owners think that this is just old age. Mm. So they don't think to mention it. So if you leave people to to voluntarily give the information, they really don't. And so that's why we get that sort of two percent diagnosis yeah. rate, is because they're two percent of people who do tell us about a problem. Um and I think often as veterinarians, we have so many things that we're doing when we're looking at older animals that we don't always remember to screen for cognitive dysfunction. And if you don't yeah. ask, people often won't tell you. So if we're not routinely screening for it, we are going to miss one of the most common things that happens to older dogs. So, Trefina, do you have some sort of um, like questionnaire that they fill in on arrival if they have a dog over a certain mm. age or how do you go about screening? Yeah. Yeah, so when I worked in general practice, I screened with a questionnaire that I got clients to fill in and I did routinely did it for every animal older than sort of seven or eight uh, and I did it every time they came into the practice unless they were mm. coming in, you know, every week or something. But it, ideally I'd be doing it every three to six months yep. um, and then just keeping a record and going back and looking at it. So that in general practice that worked well because clients could fill it in you know, while they're sitting in the waiting room yeah. or when they first arrive and then you can just quickly flick through and have a look yeah. at the results and see whether there's anything there and whether there's a change. Because one of the big things that we're looking for in when we're making a diagnosis of cognitive dysfunction is a progressive disease. Yeah. So we're yeah. expecting to see progression. Deterioration. Um, mm. Yeah, yeah. So we, 
you know, you want a, a history of a, a, you know, ongoing progressive change. And so what sort of questions were on the questionnaire? You know, there's, there's a number of different questionnaires that are available and I think that the most important thing is that every veterinary practice should have a questionnaire that they mm. have printed out or available on their website or done however they want to do it. So every single older animal gets the gets the questionnaire. Mm. Um, the questions are generally, they're done in a few different ways. And actually there was a study done recently that looked at um, two very different types of questionnaires to see if there was a difference in the diagnosis and there wasn't. So that was okay. good to see. That's good. Um, so good to know that it may not actually matter what you ask as long as you're asking roughly the right types of questions. <laughs> so that's kind of nice. Um, what we're looking for are changes that um, fit into the range of things that we see. So generally speaking, what uh, the, the nice acronym that we use for cognitive dysfunction is DISHA. Okay. So the D is for disorientation. Mm-hmm. I is for um, altered interactions with uh, owners or other pets or the environment. Mm-hmm. S is for sleep-wake cycle disturbances. Mm-hmm. The H is for house soiling. Yep. The A is for changes in activity. And I quite like DISHA with two A's and the second A is anxiety. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of older dogs have increased anxiety yeah. as one of the signs of cognitive change. Yeah, I agree. So what you then want to do is ask questions that fit in around all of those things. And so the common things we see are dogs that, um, you know, maybe get themselves behind a chair and can't work out how to get out again, mm. but they have navigational problems. So that's that disorientation thing. Well, they go to the hinge side of the door instead of the handle side. Yeah. So just some signs that they're not navigating their way around their environment as confidently as they used to. Yeah. Um, we often see that interaction with owners changes and usually they do a little bit less. So they're maybe less greeting behaviour when you get home or um, they're more likely to go off on their own at various times when they maybe previously would snuggle up with you on the couch. Mm. So often it's just a bit less interaction. The sleep-wake cycle stuff is usually pretty pronounced. When it happens, it can be very difficult for owners. Yeah. Um, and is probably the thing that people are most likely to report. Um, yeah. So that's really looking at, at animals that are becoming quite, uh, you know, sleeping more during the day and awake more at night. So mm. for dogs, they will often pace around at night time um, and cats might become very vocal at night time. Uh, and that's obviously very difficult for owners to live with because yeah. it's it's stressful watching an animal like that yeah. and it's really disruptive for sleep. Yeah. So yep. it has a huge impact on that human-animal bond Yeah, if you're awake all night with your animal. Yeah, very frustrating. Yeah, yep. Um, we often see that uh, that dogs and cats just forget their house training, so mm. they start toileting inside even when they have access to outside. Um, they might become less active and certainly more anxious is very mm. common. Yeah, oh, that's a really – I've never heard of that acronym, but it, it's a really good one. <laughs> I wish I had that it's when really I was It's really useful. I think, if you know, yeah. once you remember DISHA, you can usually come back and think about what all yeah. those things could be. Yeah. Um, and even if you didn't have a questionnaire, having the questionnaire really saves time because you can, as I say, owners can do it for you before you take them into the consult room. But mm. even if you don't have that – um, or they haven't had time to fill it in. If you've got that DISHA acronym in your head, you can very quickly run through. You know, you can ask the questions around that in a matter of a couple of minutes. Mm. If you're looking for the very subtle early signs, which is what we should be doing, then you really need a, a detailed questionnaire because you might pick up one or two very subtle signs in that 
list. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're screening and you're expecting some more significant changes, then you'll certainly find them just by asking about those things. Yeah. And just out of interest, um, I know a lot of these signs can kind of overlap with other conditions. Yes. One that comes to mind is perhaps some sort of intracranial lesion or something like mm. a brain tumour that's starting to develop. Um, obviously, c- cognitive dysfunction is a bit of a diagnosis of exclusion. Um, yes. Because there's not really any any diagnostic tests that you're going to do with a live no. animal. Um, so how do you go about diagnosing it and excluding everything else short of doing an MRI on every dog? Mm, good question. Um, so I think a lot of the things, you're right, certainly, um, you know, intracranial lesions would be one of the differentials for all of these things. Um, if you were, if you were a betting person, uh, cognitive dysfunction is going to be a lot more likely, Mm. statistically more likely, prevalence is a lot higher. Mm -hmm. Um, but we can see lots of other things as well that are, you know, also common in older dogs and cats. So one of the challenges with diagnosing cognitive dysfunction is that um, it does uh, go hand in hand with lots of other things and it is difficult to pick. Mm. Um, So you can see changes in interactions, changes in sleep-wake, house-soiling changes, changes in activity can be associated with pain. So Mm. animals that have got chronic pain from DJD, arthritis-type problems, um, can show a lot of these behavioural changes. And if we treated the pain, the behaviour change goes away. Mm. Um, You know, cats that are vocalising a lot at night time might have a thyroid problem rather than a cognitive dysfunction. Um, So a good clinical exam to rule out obvious medical issues um, blood tests to rule out endocrine disease, I mm-hmm. think a very important part of the diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, bearing in mind these things could all be happening together as well. Yeah. So just because we say this dog has got pain or this cat has got hypothyroidism doesn't mean that it doesn't also have cognitive dysfunction. So you would not exclude cognitive dysfunction, but you might then say, well, we're going to treat the primary medical problem that we've found first and see what happens. So if we found signs of pain, and I'd say that would be one of the more common things that you'd see in older dogs and cats, um, then doing a trial of pain, you know, appropriate pain relief and seeing what effect that has on the Mm. behaviour and then doing your screening tool again um, after a couple of weeks and say, well, how much difference has it made? Yeah. Yeah, yeah uh, that, that makes sense. So it's got both, mm. and it truly is a diagnosis of exclusion when you're when you're doing treatment trials and just yes. you know con- continuously revisiting that questionnaire and monitoring and um, yeah. hope, you know eventually you'll get to a place um, where you've got a fairly good picture of of what's going on with that that patient. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I plan. think a lot of owners, particularly you know people who've more more difficult if you've adopted a senior animal and you've not known them as a younger pet but if you've had the dog or cat for most of their life most people are pretty good most owners are pretty good at saying you know I just think he's confused Mm. and that's a lot of my clients say to me he looks confused Mm. um, or he looks like he's forgotten yeah Um, and I think that that's that's not something we should underestimate. You know, I yeah. think owners really do know their pets. If they're saying to you he looks confused, he probably is confused. Yeah. He may also have pain, but he probably has cognitive dysfunction as well. Yeah. And yeah. Um, 
Trufina, are, are you able to tell us a little bit about what you know about the pathophysiology of the condition, um, sort of what actually happens in the brain, what changes are occurring? Well, that's a great question. Now, there are lots and lots of different things that happen um, with the, the pathology or pathophysiology of cognitive dysfunction, and it's something that uh, is still not... It's not a, a single brain pathology that we're aware of. So what, what we're finding in the research is that there's actually quite a lot of different changes that we see. So we tend to see um, certainly uh, both in dogs and cats, uh, we'll often see the amyloid plaque mm. um, formation, which is the same sort of thing that happens in, in Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's disease. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, there is usually um, oxidative damage and um, perivascular change mm-hmm. in the brain. Um, you can get some demyelination um, and then you'll tend to see um, changes in the actual brain size, so decreased um, frontal lobe volume and decreased, uh, so increased ventricular size. Okay. Um, so you get some bigger structural changes and uh, so there's a lot going on. It's a little bit different between dogs and cats, but mm. the um, oxidative damage, the perivascular change and the um, amyloid plaque deposition stuff is seen in both dogs and cats. And the oxidative damage is what we try to sort of counteract with various different treatment options um, in terms yes. of antioxidants and different things like that with the nutrition yes. side of things, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Yep. So, Trufina, um, now that we've got a really good understanding of sort of diagnosis, how do you sort of start to approach, if you're fairly confident this is what's going on, how, how do you start off a, a patient, um, be it a dog or a cat, on some sort of treatment plan or management plan um, and get the owner on board? Um, well, I actually think that uh, when you, you know, just start of your question, you said when you're pretty sure that you've got your diagnosis right mm. and uh, this, this is actually one place where I would say, even if you're not 100% sure, if that animal is older than seven and you think there is at least one sign of cognitive dysfunction, mm-hmm. even if you're not 100% sure that it's not caused by something else, start treatment then. Mm. Because this is a progressive disease yeah. and the best thing that we can do is to treat early. Yeah. We get the highest success rate when we're treating really early. So, in fact, the, the best chance of success really is before the dog or cat is showing significant signs. So the point at which the owners are saying to you, no, no, he's fine, and you've done a screening tool and you've found one or two changes, mm-hmm. that's the best time to treat. So should so, people actually be taking more of a preventative approach absolutely, from when, yes. the pe- when the pet is, you know, a young animal? I think we should be taking a preventative approach from as soon as the animal would be considered a a senior. Senior. In fact, some people suggest that you should be treating from almost middle age. And I guess, Mm. you know, what we term a a senior is probably changing as our pet population live a lot longer. Um, But I think it's very sensible to start nutritional supplement stuff and a little bit of brain work mm. um, from the age of about seven, maybe younger yeah. for the, the giant bred dogs and from yeah. about seven in, a, in you know, most dogs and in cats. So we're taking a very preventative uh, approach simply because we know the prevalence is extraordinarily yeah. high. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Mm. And, um, yeah, nutrition-wise, can you take us through what, what you usually recommend um, in that preventative and, and or treatment approach? 
Yeah, so if we're going down the, the preventative approach from a nutritional point of view, what you want to be doing is looking at antioxidant supplements mm. because, as we said, that you know oxidative damage is really one of the most important things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, antioxidants like vitamin C, vitamin A, selenium, mm-hmm. um, and L-carnitine, which is a mitochondrial cofactor, um, mm-hmm. but that also has, um, you know, reduces oxidative damage. So those ones are really important. Um, there's some work um, on using the polyunsaturated fatty acids, so mm-hmm. your um, omega-3 and 6, um, and on the medium chain triglycerides as well. Yeah, yep. Um, but the, particularly, I think I'm mindful with a lot of this stuff that there are a lot of studies out there. There are a lot of studies in humans and there are a reasonably good number of studies in dogs and some in cats. They are not all double-blinded, placebo-controlled mm. studies. There are some that are. Um, so there is good data for some of this stuff. There is data that maybe isn't quite as good for some of it. Um but uh, certainly the antioxidant stuff um, is really strong. The data on that is strong in humans and it's pretty strong in dogs as well. Mm. Um, so using, uh, you know, supplements that have antioxidants in them um, and doing that early is a very, very sensible idea. Mm, absolutely. And it's only going to benefit the whole body isn't it? I mean, well, that's right, yeah. exactly. I mean, it's good for the brain, but it's also good for other, other parts of the body as well. So yeah. um, I think it's uh, it's a sensible thing to do and done appropriately. Obviously, we don't want to be using inappropriate um, amounts of any of these things because we don't want to cause a nutritional imbalance, mm. which I think is probably more of an issue with things like the, um, the medium-chain triglycerides. Mm-hmm. But you know, if you're supplementing appropriately and doing that by, you know, talking to your veterinarian and making sure that you're using the right sorts of things and done at the right sorts of doses, then it's going to be beneficial for lots of reasons. Mm, Absolutely. And diet-wise, do you recommend a change in diet to one that includes more fresh fruit and vegetables so they're getting more antioxidants that way? Or do you you just recommend staying with their current diet and supplementing? Um, I would often recommend changing to a diet that has uh, more, yeah, fresh fruit and veggies because I think that is a really good way of um, of getting the antioxidant support that you want. It depends. A lot of older dogs have got other issues, yeah. so we're often looking at lots of uh, lots of problems that we're trying to balance. Yeah. Um, and so it may or may not be appropriate to change the diet. It may be appropriate to change the diet to a formulated diet that's appropriate for an older an older dog that is also going to be appropriate for a, an older brain. Mm-hmm. Um, and so being aware of what's in the diet and what uh, what that diet is giving you and then thinking about what the diet isn't giving you and yeah. supplementing that. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah. And behavioural-wise, you, you mentioned that you – try and encourage um, your clients to do brain work with the pets. Mm, Can you mm, tell us a bit about that? Yeah. So the treatment of cognitive dysfunction in dogs and cats has to be multimodal. It really Mm. does. We can't just treat in one way. Mm -hmm. So we know diet is really important. There are some other supplements that might be useful. But really the the most important thing along with diet is – uh, the kind of use it or lose it approach. When mm. we're talking early stages, when we're talking about more advanced cognitive decline, it's different. But in the early stages, when we're seeing just a few signs um, and we've noticed that it's progressing over time, what we really want to do is say, 
we need to be using this brain because yeah. we know that, you, you know, brain work, using our brains um, is the best way to support ongoing brain function because our brains are plastic. We know neuroplasticity is a, a really important part of the way that our brains uh, can continue to change over time. And if we're not doing things to use our brains, then that won't help. Mm. So um, when we're getting to that seven or eight, in fact, even what my advice always would be to people that the most important times to be really thinking about actively training your dog is when they're a puppy and when they're middle-aged going into older years. You know, that's often the time your dog's seven or eight and people are just going, oh, this is great. It's so much easier. I don't have to train my dog all the time. Actually, that's a really good time to keep training your dog. Teaching old dogs new tricks. (laughs) That's it, exactly. So in those early stages, doing some new stuff, doing new training, and it doesn't have to be hours and hours of training a day. It could be five minutes of training a day, 10 minutes of training a day. Um, teach your dog some new stuff or just practice the stuff they know and do it in different places. Um, start thinking about what might be useful going into the future. So if you've got a dog who has always responded to a verbal cue, maybe start train, teaching a hand cue now mm. just in case they lose their hearing. If yeah. they've always had a hand cue, teach a verbal cue in case they lose sight. So you're you're just starting to kind of think, what do I what am I what does my dog need when it gets older? Mm. Why don't we teach it the things that it needs? I do a lot less work on things like sit because that's uncomfortable if you've yeah. got arthritis. Yeah. And a lot more work on things that dogs can do standing up and that are comfortable. We might not be doing twisting, turning, running things because that might get harder, but we can certainly do lots of things that involve thinking and problem solving and um and yeah, you know, learning. Food dispensing toys are great for that as well. Yeah, I was just thinking that. Think and problem yeah, solve. Yeah, those puzzle toys. Really, really good thing to be doing. Yeah, called puzzle toys for dogs and cats. Yeah, um, and they can definitely learn how to use those when they're older. No problem at all. Yeah. The only time at which really doing a lot of intense new learning is difficult is if you have advanced cognitive dysfunction. Mm. If you have really advanced cognitive dysfunction, the ability to learn might be pretty badly compromised. And that would be like trying to teach a person with advanced Alzheimer's something new. It would be really stressful for them. Yeah. So that's the time at which you might say, actually, we're just not going to change anything in this guy's life now because he's pretty... Yeah, he's pretty confused by just being around at the moment and he's certainly not going to deal with any changes. Yeah. But when we're looking at some earlier stages, um, then definitely food dispensing toys, bit of daily training, um, uh, those things are absolutely essential. And easy. Yeah, easy. It has to be easy for people to do it. It does. It has (laughs) to be easy. You know, I think every time I say to someone, now we're just going to talk about some behaviour mod and you can see people kind of going, oh, God, I don't have hours of training a day. And I was like, no, no, it's okay. Just fit in. We can do it in five minutes a day or 10 minutes a day. Absolutely. It fits into the routine. Yeah. That's so important. It has to be doable. Yeah. Mm. Um, And anything different for cats? Any different approaches? No, no, cats very much the same. And, you mm-hmm. know, cats um, are definitely good for using food dispensing toys, I think is a great way mm. to do it. But I did heaps of training in cats as well because cat training is a lot of fun yeah. um, and cats really enjoy it. So I do all the same sorts of things with cats. Yeah, right. And so do mm. you actually say someone comes in and they're um, – they've sort of you've you've diagnosed the pet with cognitive dysfunction and they're they're on their way do you get them in for re- sort of regular 
um, training reviews with you or do you just sort of give them a program and set them on their way and then see them um, as you would any sort of senior pet? Um, or do they, do they come in for like uh, like days? I know you've got a, a training, a behavioural tra- behavioural trainer there mm. with you. Um, do yep. you have like senior training days or anything like that or...? What do you sort of do there? Uh, no, we don't, but that's a great idea. <laughs> I really like that idea. <laughs> I'll remember that one. Yeah. Um, no, what I'd usually do with my cognitive dysfunction clients is give them, um, a, you know, a, an initial treatment plan, which is a combination of that, you know, the behavioural work, environmental work, often just starting to think about what we can do in the environment to to make it easy for the dog to cope. So sometimes that means we're... we're we might be doing lots of good brain training, but we're not actually changing very much in the environment so that there's a limited number of things that become stressful. Mm-hmm. Um, the diet stuff, very much uh, important. And then for a lot of dogs that I see, certainly in, in behaviour practice, a lot of the dogs I see with cognitive and cats that I see with cognitive dysfunction um, are at a point where they also need um, medication to treat um, their, uh, often it's the anxiety that goes hand in hand mm. with it. Yeah, there is a there. You know, is one medication that is uh, probably effective at slowing the rate of progression of cognitive dysfunction, mm-hmm. um, and sometimes that's an appropriate medication to use. Sometimes what we do is um, is treat effectively symptomatically, so we're treating with anti anxiety medication mm. um, to treat the symptom because that can be a really significant um, problem for dogs with cognitive dysfunction. Yeah. Um, but the thing that is, I think, most important when we're treating a dog or a cat with cognitive dysfunction is to remember that it is a progressive disease. Yeah. And we, the goal is get in early, diagnose early and treat preventatively. That's our absolute goal. Yep. If we haven't been able to do that successfully and by the time we start working with these animals, they've already got you know, a number of signs of cognitive dysfunction. We do the same stuff. We're still going to do the diet change. We're still going to look at doing lots of brain work if the dog's able to cope with that. Um, We may very well then be using some um, anti-anxiety medication or some supplements to try and help um, with the anxiety management stuff. Um, But we need to be aware of the fact that the chances are this is going to be a progressive problem. So I see these guys pretty regularly. to make sure that we continue to do everything we can to support them. Um, And I talk really sensibly with owners about the fact that there is going to come a point at which we can't keep the symptoms under control and that um, at some point in time we will need to make a a euthanasia decision um, based on quality of life. And do you you often find that these patients are reaching euthanasia because of their cognitive dysfunction or is it Usually, some mm. other comorbidity. Uh, no, I do find a lot of a lot of the time that we need to make a decision because of their um, cognitive decline, mm. um, because of the welfare impact yeah. that it has, and that's a tough one. And it's a tough one with any behaviour condition. Um, you know, most people, I'm sure, all of us who've worked in the veterinary profession would know that most pet owners really hope that their animals will just die peacefully in their sleep yes. and that doesn't happen very often. Mm. And then the kind of next easiest thing, not that it's ever easy, but the next easiest thing is if it's a serious medical problem that you can see and you can There's see no that the dog got, yeah, yeah, you can see that he can't stand up or, yeah. you know, whatever it is, or you can see that he can't maintain weight or something. And so yeah. you can physically see that and yeah. that often helps Making a welfare decision 
um, for a dog with cognitive dysfunction can be really, really difficult. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, so that's something that I certainly work hard to support um, my clients who are going through that because that's a really tough one. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that it sort of comes back to, I'm certainly not going to open this can of worms, but how many elderly people are suffering with very advanced dementia Mm. and Alzheimer's disease and their quality of life is very, very poor. Um, And I know I've I've heard many times people um, in the media and and people that I know saying that they wish that they could give them the same option as dogs and cats um, mm. at that end stage. Um, controversial <laughs> controversial topic, I know, but yeah, yeah, but it's it's the same, really. Um, yes, absolutely, yeah. And I I, mean, I say to my clients all the time if I'm talking about this that. Um, being able to make a euthanasia decision is a privilege. It's an mm. absolute privilege of being a vet that we, if we can't fix this problem, if I can't take away your pa- your pet's pain or your pet's distress or I can't fix their welfare to a stage where it's acceptable, then what I can do is make the end quick and painless and mm. loving and gentle. Mm. Um, and that's respectful and it's a privilege to be allowed to do that. Well, I mean, it's a treatment option in and of itself, really. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And it's not easy. It's never easy. No. And I think that we need to always stay very clear in our minds that the the thing that might be the right thing to do doesn't have to be the easy thing to do. Mm. Those two things are very different, being right and being easy. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, well, on a more positive note, <laughs> um, when you sort of start a, a dog or a cat on a treatment program like this, say that they have, you know, moderate signs of, of cognitive dysfunction, what sort of do you, what do you expect or what do clients expect and what do they usually notice and how quickly might they see some improvements? Um, in your experience, what, what, what's your sort of, you know, common trends that you see? That's a great question. Um, and it is actually, I think, quite difficult to give a, a definite answer on that because so many of the older dogs and cats that have cognitive dysfunction have something else going on as well. Mm. Um, and so often what we're doing is balancing care of, of multiple issues. What I say to every dog and cat owner that I'm treating um, for cognitive dysfunction is that Because this is a progressive disease, what I'm looking to do is slow the progression and successful treatment is if it doesn't get any worse, Mm -hmm. but that's actually not all that likely. So successful treatment is that it gets worse much more slowly than it would if we didn't treat it. Right. Um, There are some things that we do want to see get better. So some of the, the very difficult symptoms for both the dog and for the um, the owner um, are things that we do need to get under control. So the um, the nighttime, the sleep-wake changes, so nighttime waking, um, we really need to get that under control because mm. that's something that is very difficult to live with. So we need to get uh, to the point where the dog or cat is sleeping reasonably normally at nighttime. Um, house soiling, we would like to be able to either ha- see clinical improvement or be able to manage that in a way that is acceptable for Mm -hmm. everybody. Yeah. Um, And the other one that uh, I think we 
I, I always feel that I really want to be able to get improvement with is that increased anxiety that I see often in dogs and cats with cognitive dysfunction. So I like to get um, reasonably good anxiety control, reasonably good sleep-wake cycle control um, and manageable house soiling. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but really what, you, what you're doing is symptomatic management mm-hmm. um, and slowing progression of a disease. What we can't do is undo the damage that's already done. So very similar really to arthritis. Yes. Similar expectations. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. So we, the reason, and it's the, the big reason that we want to diagnose early is because the, the sooner that we diagnose it, the better the chance of, of successful treatment, mm-hmm. where success means a longer time until the animal is showing severe signs, yep. not that it never happens. But, yep. um, you know, the successful treatment when you are first diagnosing at an advanced stage is you know, that maybe you can improve quality of life for a short period of time. Yeah. Um, whereas successful treatment when you're looking at one sign in a seven-year-old dog is that you can try and manage it so that that dog can get through to a, a you know, a, night, a good a good advanced age. Yeah, So absolutely. you need to be getting in early. Um, yeah. Uh, but then also, yes, talking sensibly to owners about the fact that this is a progressive disease and the goal of treatment is to slow the rate of progression. Yeah, and do you have a conversation with your owners about, um, I'm sort of going going backwards a bit here, but about what sort of is the point where they feel that the welfare of the animal is no longer adequate enough for them? Um, mm. Like is it when they start soiling themselves or is it when they stop interacting completely with the family? Di- completely different for every pet and it owner. Is different. It is different for everyone, but I, I think that it is really, really important that as veterinarians we have that discussion with owners because they often really don't know how to make that decision. Mm. Um, it's an incredibly hard one and they are looking for our help and support and often our approval when they feel like they're at that stage. Yeah. So the things that I usually do, um, and I, I, so I, I talk to clients about it, I the point at which I talk to them about it depends on the severity. Mm-hmm. So if it's very, very mild and we're just seeing some early changes, I'm not going to start talking about euthanasia decisions at that point in time. No. But once we get to the point where it is getting more pronounced, it's getting harder to manage, then we need to start talking about it. Um, and the first thing I actually always ask people to do, and I do it reasonably early, so before things have really started to go downhill is just to ask clients to write a list of, you know, the half a dozen things that they think are most important to their pet. Mm. So write down the things that that make his life a life worth living. Uh, and for some people that's going to the park, chasing a ball, being able to swim at the beach, playing with the kids, playing with other dogs, whatever it is. There's yeah. always, you know, everyone knows the things that make your dog happy yep. or your cat happy. And yeah. you need to write those things down and you need to do it while your dog's still doing all of those things. Yeah. So you need to do it early enough that you when go, yeah, this is what, yeah, exactly. These are the things that, that give him a life worth living. Yeah. And then as that changes, we need to keep coming back and saying, is this still a life worth living as yeah. we're losing more and more of those things? I think that's a really good approach and one which is a lot easier than just having the sort of black and white conversation, um, you know, later mm. down the track is just getting yeah. getting their head in the right space early on when everything still is going well and um, 
yeah. they can have a good think about that at that stage. I think that's that's yeah. great great advice. Certainly helps a lot of people. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> Sometimes I wish I could go back into practice and just pick up all these tips that I'm learning on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be like a wonder vet. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Maybe one day. <laughs> um, well, Trafina, we're sort of rounding out to um, time today. Is there anything else that you wanted to mention about cognitive dysfunction before we sort of um, head off? I think really my my main goal anytime that I talk to to veterinary professionals about it is just um, you know please think about screening make it a routine thing done in your practice with every animal um, and know that it makes a difference if you screen and you pick early and you start to treat early mm. that you can make a difference to what happens to these animals and that's super important and it's not hard yeah. to do that's the other thing that's really nice yeah. the treatment is not it's not like trying no. to get good you know um control for a severe diabetic cat yeah you know, it's actually it's easier than that it's um yeah. it's really a matter of recommending appropriate diet change with antioxidants um and that use it or lose it get your brain working um yeah and it's if a you really... don't know how to manage that then refer to a behavior vet because that's what we're here to do that's too. what you're here for yeah absolutely mm. and it's a really lovely gentle approach um, at the end of the day. I mean, I, I, I agree that there's going to be some animals which do need that pharmaceutical intervention um, with, mm. with anxiety. But if we're talking about, you know, simple diet changes and an antioxidant supplement and some brain games, I mean, it's it's a, it's a lovely approach really to mm. um, to a condition and to, we wish that all of all of the conditions um, had such a nice, simple, gentle approach oh, to them. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. I have three of my four cats and dogs at the moment um, are in the senior age um, and they're all on their anti you know, antioxidant supplements and we <laughs> do a bit of brain work. And I do think to myself, this is so much easier than trying to, you know, prevent arthritis in my yeah. Labrador. Well, it's kind of fun as well because it just builds that bond yeah. that you have with the pet. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, it is. Yeah. And they love it. Yeah. So rewarding. Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm guessing that's um, that makes it much easier for your clients to adhere to tr your treatment plans, um, yes. all of those aspects, yeah, yeah, yeah which is great. It is easy. And if clients are, you know, if you've got clients that, that kind of look at you when you say, hey, can we do five minutes of training and they're looking at you like there's no way I can do that, then I make it easier and I give them a game that they can play with their dog that takes two minutes that mm. they can do while they're sitting in front of TV at yeah. night. You know, there's always something. Everybody can do something. Yeah. There's always something that's going to fit in with you've just got to find out what motivates your client as well as what's yeah. going to motivate the dog. And what then everyone's happy. Is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, we need to all be motivated to uh, to enjoy doing what we do. Yeah, absolutely. And gosh, if um, people are going to come and see you, then it, it, it just radiates off you. So, <laughs> so, so um, they're, they're very, very lucky to have you down in Melbourne. Um, and yeah, it's so exciting you. that you've opened your new practice. Are you able to share with our listeners um, the contact details for, for you and for the new practice? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my new practice is called Wild Things Veterinary Behaviour Services. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And it's really, you know, we chose the name because uh, a little bit of wild is is a good thing, you know. Yeah. We've all got a little bit of wild to us and yeah. that's, um, that's not something we should be ashamed of. No. Um, so people can find us. Uh, we have a, a website uh, which is going to be up and running properly very soon, which is wildthingsvbs.com.au mm -hmm. and um, 
Uh, our phone number is 0414 588 586. Um, or our email is info at And can vet, vets can refer to you, but can clients come yes. directly to you as well? Yeah, yeah, clients can come directly to us. Um, we, I, I really like getting our referrals through vets and I love working with general practice vets to, um, you know, to have sort of ongoing care, share, that shared care approach with their pets. Yeah. Um, but yes, we get our clients, uh, clients come to us either from referrals from vets or from trainers or they just find us. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Trofina. I've really enjoyed um, chatting to you on this Friday afternoon. Um, It's certainly taught me a lot and I know that our listeners are going to learn a huge amount about um, what is such a common but sounds like a fairly um, manageable condition to a certain extent, which is cognitive dysfunction. Um, I know you've shared a lot of pearls already, but is there any last pearl of wisdom that you would like to leave our listeners with? The biggest pearl I think that I can ever share with anyone with, with vets about cognitive dysfunction is just to say it is so common, look for it early. That's really the most important thing that we can do. Look for it early and start your preventative care. Well, I think that's a great place to end. (laughs) So great, Pearl. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Trofina. And we'll definitely have you back one day. Um, And all the best with the new practice. I, I know it's going to be a huge success. Thank you very much. This is the Pure Animal Podcast. And I'm Dr. Sarah Howard. If you enjoyed today's podcast, feel free to give us a rating and review on iTunes.